Well, good to see you this morning. And it's about to be noon. Oh, it just became noon. Good to see you this afternoon. I love that, that transition. We start in the morning, we end in the afternoon here. Uh, hope you're doing well. Thanks for bearing with us with the, the lighting difficulties. If you'll notice, this side of the room is not as well lit. Um, we're aware of that. We're on it. We'll hope to get that fixed this week. So if you have trouble seeing, it's not going to offend me at all or distract me if you want to get up and move over to the light. Um, however, if you prefer the darkness, feel free to stay put. So uh, all kidding aside, um, seriously, if you need to move over to see, feel free to do that. Stay put if you like where you're at. Um, we are going to be in Acts chapter 3. I'm excited to pick up the story with you in verse 11 that we began last week. And uh, so if you want to go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 3, feel free to do that. As you do so, got a couple of things I want to make you aware of, um, in particular to members. I want to make a couple of announcements or those of you who are thinking about becoming members of Solid Rock. Um, first of all, starting this month, we are going to uh, be sending out a once a month um, call it a newsletter for lack of better words to members. And in this, you're going to have, there you go. See, look, coming over to make room, aren't you? Awesome. Some, some people prefer the darkness. Hey, let's, we, we won't judge you for that. Um, so uh, where was I at? Wow. So this newsletter has been going out monthly to members and we want to, we want to create a way to get information to you. Don't be expecting, you know, all tricked out bells and whistles and graphics and all that kind of stuff. That's not that kind of email. It's just information we want to send out to members. We've got so many big things happening uh, across the campus and, and not enough time to get the information out here on Sunday morning. So we're going to be sending that out once a month. This is not um, to take the place of the weekly one that goes out on Thursdays uh, with just fresh information. So still be looking for that. But you're, if you're a member, we want to be sending more information to you. In addition to that, I want to let you know if you're thinking about becoming a member, our Connect class this month is going to be on October 26th. That's a Wednesday night in here. And so if you want to become a member, thinking about becoming a member, or just want to find out more information about what it means to be a member, we encourage you to come to that on October 26th, 6.30 in this room. We'll go over all that we can and we'll answer any questions we can and pray with you as you uh, seek the Lord on his will for you and your membership here. Now, even if you're not a member, but you're thinking about becoming a member, I want to invite you to, how many times can I say the word member today? An all-member meeting. So we don't do member meetings every month here at Solid Rock. We do it periodically. Uh, the one for this fall will be on Tuesday night, October the 18th at 6.30 in this room. And so this is a time to come together. We're going to be hitting the topics of uh, new building update and timeline. We're going to share with you what we know at this point. We're going to be looking at uh, the finances for the church for this year and next. And we're also going to be looking at the role of deacons in the church. And so encourage you to come be a part of that conversation on October the 18th. If you're a member or thinking about becoming a member, we're not going to check credentials at the door. Just consider yourself part of the family. Come join us and we'll walk through that together. Now, I think we got all that out of the way. It's also on the calendars in front of you. If you didn't catch anything I said, grab a calendar and it's there for you. So back to Acts chapter three. This is where we're going this morning. So what we're gonna see in Acts three this morning is really kind of a repeat of what we saw in Acts chapter two. So what happened in Acts chapter two? The Holy Spirit fell powerfully on the apostles. Uh, miraculously, God worked through these men to speak in a way that all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem who were within hearing distance were hearing these men speak in their birth language. And this miracle captivated an audience and people began to gather around the apostles and Peter stands up and preaches. Now, it was a big crowd because at the end of his sermon, about 3,000 of those people became Christians. And that was Acts chapter 2. And then they began to formulate their lives in such a way um, that they became a biblical community devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. And that was Acts chapter 2. Now, what we're going to see in Acts chapter 3 is very similar, that it begins with a miracle, a powerful movement of God, this time, as we saw last week, in an individual's life. There was a man who was lame from birth, and we don't know if he was paralyzed or his, just his feet and ankles didn't work, but he had never walked before. And through the apostles uh, approaching this man, seeing this man, addressing not just this man's situation, but his heart, this man placed his trust in the name of Jesus and he was healed. So we begin with a miracle here. Now what we're going to see today is another crowd has begun to gather, this time outside the temple. And Peter is going to pick this up in verse 11 and address all who are present. 
So we're going to pick this up in verse 11 of Acts chapter 3. Begins with these words. While he clung to Peter and John. So the he is the man that we read about last week who had been healed. So he was healed. He stood up. He began to jump. He took off running. He ran into the temple and he was worshiping God. We saw that last week. Now he's clinging closely to Peter and John as we, we can understand, right? I mean, he's never walked before and whatever just happened, happened through these two guys. I don't want to leave these two guys, right? Not fully understanding the power of God working. He didn't have any idea if this was going to, you know, once they went home, is this going to go back to being paralyzed again? Do I need to hang out with these two guys? And like a lot of us, we associate the power of God working with an individual or an event or a song or a church building and the glory that belongs to God gets diverted where? Onto things here on earth. And so this guy is clinging to Peter and John, understandably. But now what we're going to see is the crowd that's gathering was beginning to focus on Peter and John. That the, the folks who were in the temple, they saw this guy come in. We've already read about this last week. They saw him come in. They knew this was the guy who was paralyzed. Like they began to whisper, hey, isn't that Joe? Yeah. Have you ever seen him walk before? I've never seen him walk before. He's, he's, been, he's been paralyzed since he was born. How do you know that? I, was, I remember when he was a kid. That guy's never walked. Are you sure? What happened? I don't know, but those two guys over there were talking to him. I think one of them prayed for him or something. I don't know. But it was, and word began to spread in the temple while they were worshiping about this man who was healed and somehow was connected to Peter and John. Okay? So now a crowd's going to begin together as we continue in verse 11. So when Peter... Uh, sorry, verse 11. So while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, they ran together to them, Peter and John, in the portico called Solomon's. So the crowd isn't just kind of gathering in curiosity. They're like, boom, up and running to these guys. Now here's what's going to happen. Peter and, and John are going to recognize that for all the people present here, they're associating whatever happened in this man's life with these two men. And so as Peter steps up to address the crowd, the first thing he's going to address is where the glory is going. Look at what he says in verse 12. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. So what's the it? The it is this man who's been healed clinging to them. The it is also the crowd of people who've gathered, right, around them. That's part of the it. Part of the it is the fact that all those who are present are associating the power of God with Peter and John. That's part of the it too. And so Peter and John recognize this it and what's going on. And so Peter addresses the people. And here's what he says. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or... Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we have made him to walk? Now, you recognize what's going on in Peter's heart. He, he recognizes that the people are giving the glory for this man's healing to them. And Peter quickly says, whoa, 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 whoa. My shoulders are not broad enough to carry that kind of weight. We didn't do this. This man, as we'll see in verse 16, trusted in the name of Jesus, that's why he's healed, not in us. It's not our power that brought about his healing. There's power going on here, but it's not ours. And nor is it our piety, our sense of self-righteousness or integrity or holiness that brought about his healing. Don't you dare put that glory on us. We're not fit to carry the burden of that weight. Now, if you're taking notes with us, let's fill in the blank and talk about it. What Peter was quickly doing was proclaiming that the source of power for the unstoppable church was God and God alone. God is and always has been the source of power for the unstoppable church. Acts 2, 3,000 people becoming Christians, not because Peter was a great orator or a great preacher. He just pointed to the Old Testament and said, see, this Jesus, he's the Christ. It was the power of God that brought the salvation. And now once again, God is healed, and Peter's saying, whoa, 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 whoa. 
Don't put that on us. The power you see displayed is the power of God. Now, the subtitle we're using for this sermon series is The Unstoppable Church, and it's always important for us to distinguish the difference between what's going on at Solid Rock and what we mean by The Unstoppable Church. We are in no way proclaiming that we have a corner on the market or that we are the right, perfect church that is unstoppable. All we're saying is that from a historical perspective, from a scriptural perspective, what Jesus promised in Matthew 16 has come to fruition. Jesus said, upon this proclamation that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I am launching an unstoppable church is what Jesus said. And what we look at historically, despite man's best efforts to ruin what God is doing, to thwart God's plans through persecution, through corruption, all the darkness and all this, the sin and wickedness that has surrounded the church historically, that this has truly been an unstoppable movement. Despite us, God is moving his church forward, right? So what does that mean for us at Solid Rock? Right now we're in a season where we're seeing God move in some powerful ways, amen? If you're new here, we invite you to hang around and be a part of it. It is exciting what God is doing. We see it tangibly just in numbers, right? We see it in the fact that we had to launch a third service and we see all that God is doing right now in our church numerically. Last Sunday was one of our biggest Sundays of the year and for no apparent rhyme or reason from our perspective. We weren't doing a big invite push. We weren't marketing. We were just, it was just last Sunday just happened. To, God said, hey, a lot of people are gonna show up today. We look at like the, the giving right now in our church. Like last Sunday was our biggest Sunday on the records, giving. There was no rhyme or reason. We weren't fundraising. We weren't promoing or any of that kind of stuff. Just the, the generosity that wells up out of having a gratitude for what Jesus has done is overflowing in this place. Now, behind all those numbers are stories. Story after story after story of God doing a redemptive work in the lives of his people here. And listen to me, that is not solid rock working. It's the power of God. Only God can restore marriages. What do we do? We tear marriages down. We break them. God restores. Only God can set free from addiction. What do we do? We gravitate towards handcuffs and shackling ourselves to, to addictions of all sorts. From, from, from chemical addictions to sexual addictions to you just name it, right? We're prone to gravitate towards things that shackle us. It's only the power of God that can unlock shackles and set prisoners free. And so behind all these numbers are these amazing, powerful stories that God is doing through his church. Don't you for one second dare to put the glory on solid rock. We don't have shoulders broad enough to carry that that weight. Because see, the unstoppable church, historically and today, and what God is doing through Solid Rock Church is the power of God and God alone. And, and our tendency is very similar to these folks, isn't it? We associate God moving with the things here on earth, right? So like, God really moved in my heart during this special song. So now every time we sing that song, I expect God to move and you know what? God doesn't move unless we sing this song, so I hope we sing this song today. Or God really moves when I meet with this person or when this preacher preaches or in this particular Bible text, and, right? And we associate God's movement with things here on earth, right? That's the same thing. And what Peter is saying is, hey, draw your gaze upward. Don't put it on us. Don't stare at us. Don't stare at, at me and John. We got nothing to offer you. But you're right. Something powerful is happening here, but it is the power of God and God alone. God is the source of power for the unstoppable church. Now, what I want to do is we're going to go to verse 13, and we're going to look at now Peter addressing the crowd. He's going to roll into his sermon, if you will. And here's what he does in verse 13. He first of all, um, he first of all distinguishes who God is. Much like today, there were a number of gods with a lowercase g that were worshipped. Some had formal names. Some were just ideas or concepts like today, right? Today we worship materialism. We worship all sorts of false gods. In this particular time, they gave names to their gods a lot of times. You know, the God of fertility, the God of rain, the God of such and such and such and such. And, and Peter stands up and addresses the crowd and says, let me tell you first of all who I mean when I say God. The God of Abraham, 
the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. This is the one true God. This is the God of the Hebrew people. This is the God of creation, the God of your Old Testament, Yahweh, the one true God. Now, what, what follows from here, I want, this is what I want you to look for in these next few verses. Look for what God does in contrast with what people do. Because Peter's going to draw a distinction between what God is doing and what people are doing. Look at what he says. So this God, the God of our fathers, he glorified his servant, Jesus. That's what God did. Whom you delivered. That's what you did. So God glorified Jesus. You delivered him over and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. What is he saying here? Peter's referring back to that moment where Pilate came before the mob and he said, he gave him an option. You remember this from the, the day of the crucifixion? It was, a customary, uh, it was a customary pattern for Pilate to offer up to release a prisoner to be set free, kind of a pardoning, if you will. And so Pilate, not sure what to do with Jesus because he hadn't really done anything wrong, yet the people were falsely accusing him and they wanted him to die. And Pilate was just really wrestling with this. And so he's, well, here's a good option. How about I, I give, how about I give the option to pardon? So he says, who would you have me pardon here? Barabbas the murderer or Jesus of Nazareth? And what do the people say? Release the murderer and kill Jesus. And so Peter's drawing a distinction. Here's what God was doing. He was glorifying his son, Jesus. Here's what you were doing. You were denying, you were handing him over. Verse 15, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. You feel, the, you feel the distinction? Here's what you did. Here's what God did. To this, we are witnesses. Now, verse 16, he's going to lay out where the glory belongs in the healing of this man. Talking about Jesus and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and you know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And we'll look at verse 17 together and 18 in just a second. But here's what, what Peter's doing. First of all, he draws a distinction between what him and John are doing versus what God is doing, right? Why are you staring at us? We didn't do this. And then he begins to talk about the cross and he wants the people to know. God was involved in that cross scene. God was glorifying his servant, Jesus. God was raising him from the dead. Here's what you were doing. You were denying him, handing him over, and you were killing him. That's what you were doing. Two things were happening. Same event. God was working, and you were working. And then look at what he says in verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that this Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So Peter is describing two different active things happening in the same event. What Peter is doing is describing the sovereignty of God. And he's letting the people know, right, that they were all guilty, that what happened to Jesus was, was the result of, of everybody, right? Even Peter is saying what? He's saying, remember you denied Jesus? I mean, come on, what better authority on denying Jesus than Peter? I mean, this is the, the one specific disciple that Jesus said, hey, you're going to deny me three times. And what happened? Peter did. So if anybody is guilty of denying Jesus, it's who? Peter, right? So when Peter's projecting this, he's saying, here's what people do. We deny Jesus, we hand him over, and we killed him. We're all responsible for that. But here's what God was doing. He was doing something beautiful and powerful and glorious at the same time. And so we begin to get this portrait of God as a sovereign God. While man was acting in wickedness, God was fulfilling what he promised. So here's what I want to I I land with you on today in this particular section of Peter's sermon. So among pastors and churches and theologians today, there's some debate over the extent to which God inflicts his sovereignty on people. And there's a big debate about God's sovereignty and free will in the church today. We're not going to get into that debate right now. 
But here's what we, we can't deny from what the scriptures foretell. God is truly sovereign. Regardless of what extent you believe he inflicts that sovereignty and control over your life, truly God is sovereign. And that's what Peter's saying. While you were acting in ignorance, while you were turning this guy over, while you were convicting him of a crime he didn't commit, and ultimately you crucified him and nailed him to the cross, God was working sovereignly through that to bring about something glorious and beautiful and powerful. And this is, this is the God of the Old Testament that we read about, right? God's not just working through Abraham's faithfulness. He's working through Abraham's unfaithfulness too, Right? He's working through Abraham saying, okay, I'll obey you and go. And he's also working through those moments where Abraham's saying, wife, that's not my wife, that's my sister. And he's lying. Right? You continue following the story. God's not just working through uh, Abraham's faithfulness to bring about a son, a true heir. You know that Abraham and his wife, they didn't fully believe God that they, he, Abraham actually gets her servant pregnant first. Do you know that's part of your Old Testament story of God working? Just keep tracking down. How about, uh, how about Jacob and Esau, the two twin sons of Isaac? It's not the firstborn, the faithful one that God chooses to work through. It's the conniving little jerk younger brother, the heel grabber. That's what his name means. God's sovereign plan working through even our weaknesses and through our sin, right? And this is what Peter's saying. Whoa, 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 whoa. Don't you begin to give us that glory. God's working here, but not because of us. And so let me explain to you how this works. How about after that, sons of Jacob? How about Joseph? God wasn't just working through Joseph, the, the one son who was faithful and had integrity. How about his brothers that sold him into slavery? Genesis 50, it all comes together, and the brothers finally realize that they had acted ignorantly towards their brother Joseph, and they come and they ask for forgiveness. What does Joseph say? You don't need my forgiveness. Why? Because what you were doing and intending for evil, guess what? God was superintending it for good. While your evil intentions were running rampant and you were following your free will, guess what God was doing? He was sovereignly orchestrating something here. Superintending his plan for human history, his plan for redemption. And what Peter is saying is this. Let's talk about the cross. I need you to understand something. The cross was not a last-ditch effort from God to try to fix things. Later on, the apostle Paul will write in Ephesians 1, this was actually a plan from the foundation of the earth. This is part of God's designed, orchestrated, perfect plan to bring about salvation. Now, if you're taking notes, let's, write, let's fill in the blanks together. God is the sovereign architect. I like that word, architect. The idea of an architect is that, right, it means that you pay attention to detail and you design something. God is the sovereign architect and orchestrator because what is an architect without somebody there to carry out the plans? So God not only designs human history and life and redemption, he orchestrates it in such a way that we, like Peter, realize, I don't need to get any glory for this. I don't know how this worked out this way. I was talking with a lady um, before our 10 o'clock service, one of our members here, and she was, you just, if you know this lady, you can't deny the joy that's just coming out of her life right now. And I'm not gonna say her name, but um, if you know her, you know what I'm talking about. And I was just saying, hey, it's just so awesome to see the joy coming out of your life. And she said, I have no words to, to describe or explain to you what's going on, the only thing I can say is God is working. That's it. That's perfect. That's all you need to say. God is working. Don't attribute it to a person. Don't attribute it to an event or a song or a leader, right? Attribute it to God. And what Peter is saying here is he has the captive audience is this. You need to understand something. There's power happening here, but this is the sovereign working of God. He is the one who is architecting, designing this, and he's the one orchestrating what's happening. Don't you dare give us credit for that. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that? Do you truly believe that God is the architect, the designer of human history, and the orchestrator of life? You can let that just fall in your, your, your heart rhetorically if you want. Do you believe that? See, it's one thing to believe that theologically. It's another thing to believe that practically in our day-in, day-out lives, isn't it? 
because we get caught up in the messes. We get caught up in the mistakes. We get caught up in our imperfections. And when we do that, we take our eyes off God and we see the mess, guess what? We begin to lose hope. We begin to lose purpose. We begin to forget that God is working despite the mess. So it's one thing to believe that theologically. God is sovereign. He designs. He's orchestrating. He's guiding the universe forward. And it's a whole other thing to practically apply that to your life on the ground on Monday morning. When things start unraveling, when lights quit working, when ACs go out, when tires go flat, when all your hard work you put into this big project just falls apart and now your, your boss is disappointed in you and, and you expect them to be proud of you, right? When you take your eyes off of God and you see the mess, you're only catching half of the equation. Simultaneously, while you are living your life, muddying up the waters, wrestling through, sometimes getting it right, sometimes not getting it right, guess what? God is a sovereign God guiding you. And it's hard to believe that in the valleys, isn't it? It's easy to feel forgotten, abandoned. God doesn't have a plan. God forgot me. Maybe God changed his mind. But it takes faith to press in and say, no, he has not. That's the, the God of the Bible is a God who doesn't forget. He doesn't give up. He doesn't change his mind. What he has begun in my life, he will bring to completion. Right now, in this valley, in this moment, in this hardship, in this mess, I can't feel it, but I know it's true. God is still on his throne. God is the one working here. God is the sovereign, sovereign architect and orchestrator of the unstoppable church. Let's just, let's just agree together, Solid Rock Church. Let's agree that what's happening right now is the unfolding of his plans, not ours. We make plans and he thwarts them and overrides them. And the ones that he let us, lets us carry out are the ones that he intended to begin with. God is not moving at solid rock because of awesome leadership or because we laid out some fantastic building plan or we have, the, we have the corner on how to launch a church or how to do things right. Forget that mess. Can we agree together that the work God is doing is him and him alone? and agree not to associate the amazing work God is doing with a community group leader or an elder or a pastor or the worship team or the songs or this building or this campus. Can we agree together on that? Now, verse 19 and 20, we get to what I would propose to you is the heartbeat of chapter three, but more importantly, the heartbeat of the gospel. I love how quickly Peter gets to verse 19. Look at verse 19 and 20 with me. Peter responds with, or he continues with, repent therefore, or you could read it, therefore, since that's true, repent. Repent therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Let's tap the brakes for a minute and pull over. We need to have a conversation about repentance. Repentance is a word that we don't use outside of religious talk in our culture, right? Anybody use that in your profession? Right? It means something religious. And in our current day, 2016, oftentimes it carries a negative connotation, doesn't it? We associate the call to repentance with what? Hellfire, brimstone, preaching, turn or burn, you're going to go to hell, this fear-driven gospel trying to scare people into becoming Christians that we saw 18th, probably more so in the 19th century, early 20th century revivals. And so we hear the word repentance, right? This is the word that Hollywood uses to make fun of Christians. Like in a movie, if they're going to portray a preacher up on a stage, you know the word repentance is coming, right? Anytime I see a preacher on a stage on a movie that's driven by Hollywood, I go, oh God, here it comes. He's going to say the word repent. And he's going to be angry. He's going to have his fist in the air. He's going to be yelling at the people, repent, turn and burn, right? Turn or burn. But can I just propose something to you? Could we for a minute just reset in our minds what this word means and, 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 and maybe be open to the fact that this could actually be a beautiful life-giving word, repentance? So this is the second time Peter's mentioned repentance. Again, in Acts 2, he preaches. But keep in mind, this is the first 
sermon. They don't really know what to do here. Peter steps back, boom, drops the mic, fist bumps the other apostles. They're looking and the crowd of people is out here in verse 37 says that they were cut to the heart. They didn't know what to do. So, whoa, 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 wait a second, Peter, get back up to the microphone. We've got a question. What are we supposed to do now? And so Peter goes, oh, yeah, that's right. I've got to give you some follow-up here. Here's what you need to do. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. And 3,000 people became Christians in that moment. Peter's caught on to the fact, I've got to give them the instructions. So he does. So he says, since this is true, since God is sovereign over the death of Jesus, his resurrection, over your life, he's orchestrating all this for his glory. You're good. Therefore, because that's true, repent. The word repentance, if we break it down, has got two significant meanings. First of all, it describes an attitude of heart, okay? Repentance describes an attitude of sorrow. So repentance is getting to that place in your journey where when you look back at either yesterday or last year or the last 10 years or the last 40 years, and you see the wake of your decisions, and you see a lot of heartache, a lot of brokenness, a lot of mess, a lot of sin. Repentance is, first of all, a heart attitude of sorrow, of saying, I am sorry that that took place. It's more than that, but it includes a heart attitude of sorrow. Now, what it also implies is an act of turning. It functionally means a turning of the mind, a new mindset. So it's seeing the wake of your past, what you have done, what has been done to you, having sorrow over those things, but not staying there, right? If you just stay there, then, then that's a great prescription for depression and shame and guilt and shackles. But repentance is, a, is saying, hey, don't stay there. There's a solution for your problem. Feel the sorrow and then turn away from it. Turn to the joy that can only be found in Christ. That's repentance. It's more than just feeling sorrow. It's more than just an apology. It is saying, you know what? If I continue this way, the same way I live this way, I'll end up with the end result of death. That's where this life is headed. Repentance is saying, I need something bigger than me to fix this mess. I need a sovereign God to rescue me. I'm gonna turn from this mess to Christ. Now, that's what you do. But remember, while you're doing something, God is sovereignly working. And that's where the power of God begins to work in your life. And so Peter describes two powerful things that God does in your life when you repent. You can't do these things. The only thing you can do is turn. But as you turn in faith to Christ, God is powerfully working, doing two remarkable things. The first thing he says is this. Repent, therefore, turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. And this Greek word blotted out means to, to wash away or to cover over. Um, either way you want to do it. I, I have this image in my mind. I'll try to paint a picture for you. How, I, how, how this looks for me. So if I could, for just a minute, get you to imagine behind me a dry erase board that extends to my right, your left, let's say five miles. Follow me? And then if I turn to my left, it extends to the west, your right, another five miles. And on this dry erase board, if you begin to read the words written, it's full, completely full of words, you begin to read the description and accounts of my wickedness my wicked thoughts, my wicked deeds, my sinfulness. Then, then you would have a glimpse of my sin, a glimpse, because guess what? That's just, that's just last week, baby, right? The, right behind it is the week before that, right? And then right behind that is the week before that, okay? And so what this word means is that when I turn from my sorrow and my sin to the hope I have in Christ, it's, it's not saying that Jesus starts on one end and every time I do a good deed, he erases something. Oh, you know what? You've been really good today. I'm gonna erase three of them. Now, what's the problem with that? First of all, I don't have enough life left to, to go that route. Here's the second problem. As soon as I start working on 2016, January 2016, guess what? I'm racking up October 2016 and I'm racking up more debt than I could ever pay back. So the word repentance means that when I turn to Christ from my sin, he blots, he wipes the whole thing clean. Every bit of it. And for the first time in my life, the dry erase board is only white. It's never been white. 
when I was a little two-month-old infant who couldn't talk or walk, guess what? I was, I was racking up a rack sheet of selfishness and sinfulness. I asked my mom. I was an accomplished little sinner. There's no way for me to go all the way back to the beginning and start undoing all my sin. It's a futile effort. It's a, it's a, it's a burdensome effort, and it will make you weary. And so it's only natural that after he says that by turning to Jesus, he'll, he'll blot away your sins, guess what? He leads you to a time of refreshing in his presence. I love this word because the word refreshing also translates rest. And we're not talking about physical rest. We all know what that's like and we don't, most of us don't get enough of it. We're talking about rest for your soul. We're talking about a rest that you have regardless of what's going on in your life where your soul is at peace and at rest. Let's talk for a minute about what causes unrest in the soul. If we go back to Genesis chapter three, the introduction of sin to the world, we see the first glimpse of unrestfulness. After Adam and Eve sin, guess what they do? They get super busy. They get busy trying to cover themselves up from one another trying to hide the shame and the guilt that they feel from their sin, and they get busy trying to hide from God. Now, this is a weary task, isn't it, to hide your sin from people and to hide your sin from God? And it doesn't mean we don't try. Some of you have been working on this for a long time, and you're tired. You're weary. You're tired of pretending. You forgot. What was the lie again? What was my justification for this again? I'm so tired of trying to make excuses for my past or hide my past. I'm tired and I'm weary, equally weary from God, right? You, you encounter his presence. He convicts you of that sin and you put it off. And it's a weary practice to try to hide from God. You know, we read in Genesis 3 that God comes to Adam and Eve in the morning. This is just my interpretation. I bet it was a long night for both of them. You ever had a sleepless night because of guilt? Just the shame of what, you, what you've done is just haunting you and your soul never really rests. I mean, you may go to sleep in and out, but your soul isn't at rest. See, one of, one of the sources of unrest for the soul is the guilt and the shame we feel for our sins. Peter's acknowledging that. These people aren't any different from you today. The same thing was plaguing their soul that's plaguing you today. He's saying, you want rest for your soul? You need to turn in sorrow from your sin and turn to Jesus. He'll blot out your sins and give you rest. I was thinking of other things that impact the rest of our soul today. Um, this whole um, trying to keep up with the Joneses, the grass is always green on the other side, that's been true of all human history. Okay, That's not just a new thing. What makes it a, a more difficult thing to overcome in our culture and society is now you get, you get free marketing through social media. And so through social media, everybody's putting, they're advertising their best self, right? And so you see these images of other people, other families, and they're doing all these things, and they've, they're always smiling. There's no stress in their lives. They never argue with their spouse. Their children are always obedient. Look at the pictures, Right? And so you get this false idea of reality, so you try to apply that to your lives, right? Well, let's go to this restaurant and eat out on the patio like they, why are we fighting? I, the, the picture of this other family, they're smiling. Why are, we, why are we not smiling? Right, because what? You can't see the real story. You can't see the, the snowball of death that's happening behind the scenes trying to keep up with this lifestyle. And we pursue joy and happiness and things here on earth. It is a weary task. Because as soon as you accomplish what you think is going to make you happy, somebody moves the goal line. Right? <sighs> I mean, how defeating is that? I signed up for a 5K, and now I'm running a 10K. Fine, let's do it. And then you get to the 10K line, and what happens? The goal line moves again, and you're tired, and you're weary from pursuing a, a joy and a false reality. I think accompanying that right along with that is pursuing a false sense of self-worth. I mean, the human soul longs to be wanted, right? Not a person in this room that doesn't want to be wanted or loved and accepted. The problem is when you get busy trying to earn favor, 
you're going to get tired and you're going to get weary. And your soul, your soul is going to get worn out. You can never do enough good to earn the favor of another flawed human being. Think about that. Trying to earn the favor of a sinner. That's a weary task, isn't it? Somebody who's, who's selfish and you're trying to get them to be selfless and acknowledge you. What a weary task to try to find self-worth in, in somebody's opinion of you. And I could just keep going, couldn't I? Of all the things that plague our souls that keep us from rest. And what did Jesus say in Matthew 11, 28? Some of you know where I'm going. This is a beautiful invitation. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, this is, the, this is the pulse of the gospel, to give your soul a place to rest. See, what Peter is doing, he's not driving the people with fear into a relationship with Jesus. He's saying, listen, repentance is a beautiful, glorious, powerful thing. Your job is to turn in sorrow from your sin and turn in faith to Jesus. And when you do that, there's going to be a superintended, powerful work of God in your life. He promised to do it. That's his part. And guess what he's going to do? He's going to blot out all your sins. You're going to look to the right and go, man, whew, I feel free from that junk. I don't even see the junk anymore. Whew, when are we going to work on the stuff on the left? And you look and you go, oh my gosh, it's all gone. I'm not shackled to that stuff anymore. It's not who I am anymore. And, it, and with that comes this amazing, miraculous rest for your soul. Now, I'm going to summarize. If you're taking notes, true repentance leads to forgiveness of sins and rest for the soul. True repentance. True repentance leads to forgiveness of sins and rest for the soul. Now, what I want to do is I'm going to summarize verses 20 through 25, and then we'll look at 26 together. Here's what Peter's going to do. I encourage you to go back and read it. He's going to jump around the Old Testament, but he's making a point. He's going to talk about Moses. He's going to talk about Samuel. He's going to talk about Abraham. And what he's doing is he's laying out this case that through all the, these prophets who spoke and wrote, God was ultimately pointing us to Jesus. Matter of fact, he ends with Abraham. And, and, and we know that from the story of Abraham in Genesis 12, God makes this amazing promise to Abraham. Comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, hey, get your stuff packed and get ready to go. Awesome, God, I'll do that. Where are we going? Just get your stuff packed and let's get ready to go and I'll show you. And that begins this journey. But in that conversation, God makes a promise to Abraham. Abraham, I'm gonna bless you. You and your wife don't have any kids, but you're gonna have kids. Matter of fact, you're gonna have Kids who are going to have kids who are going to have kids who are going to have kids. And your family's going to become so big, it's going to be like trying to count the stars in the sky. He was talking about the Hebrew nation, the Jews. But not only that, I'm going to bless all other ethnicities, all other families and nationalities through your descendants. He was looking forward to Jesus. That those who would trust in Jesus would receive the blessing and the promise of Abraham. And I'll tell you what, let's pick this up in verse 25. He says to the people, this is where he ends his sermon, you are the sons of the prophets and the covenant that God has made with your father. So in a way he's saying, you're the recipients of all that God has promised. Saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So what Paul, Peter is saying is that what God promised through Abraham, you're the recipients of this. It's what God was talking about. He's talking about right now. Receiving by faith this amazing grace that calls all ethnicities, all colors of skin, all backgrounds into this beautiful family of God. Look at what he says in verse 26. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you. How? How is God going to bless us? By turning every one of you from your wickedness. The unstoppable church finds its hope in the promises of God. The unstoppable church finds its hope in the promises of God. Two things. Let's talk about what that means for us as a church first. If we ever, as a church, 
begin to gravitate towards finding our hope in anything other than God, what we're doing is we're deflecting the glory from God onto other things. If we ever get to a place where we're placing our hope in a new building, a new staff member, more money, more people, right? If any of those things, plus anything else you could mention, ever become our hope, we've missed it. Like the reason God is working powerfully through us right now, don't miss this, is because our hope is in him and him alone. Trust me, it's not in the leadership here. We're not that cool. We don't have that much integrity. We don't have shoulders broad enough to carry that burden. Trust me, we, the elders do not want that glory here. Our leadership, we don't want that. Jesus and Jesus alone is working. So therefore, our hope must be rooted in his promises for us. You, you tracking with me on that? Can, can we just agree together as a church? Can we agree to hold one another accountable and encourage one another in that way? Somebody comes to you and says, oh, man, just thank you for what you did for me and how you spoke into my life. Could, you, could we be like Peter, quick to deflect the glory? Whoa, 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 don't thank me. I'm just a conduit here. I was just around the same place God was working. Don't associate me with what God's doing in your life. Praise God he's working, right? As, as God works and we see God working and you hear about, let's be quick to take the glory and deflect it to where it belongs, God and God alone. Let's think about this, what this means for us as individuals. So I don't know everybody here, and even those of you who I do know, um, I'm just still getting to know, right? And so in, in an individual way, we've got to think about this. What does it mean for me to, tr tr to place my hope on the promises of God alone? What God is calling you to do is, is to take the things you hope in of this world, the things that you hold so tightly in your hand, and to let go of them. Okay? Think about this for just a minute. What is it that you look forward to for your happiness? What is it that if God told you to let it go, right, you would, you would, you would, you would feel a sense of anxiety or fear in? What is it that you're clinging to for your hope? Is your hope hanging on how well your relationship goes with this person? And that's a, that's a futile pursuit. Is your hope, is it hanging on, is it hinging on how well work goes in your next promotion or whether or not you find a job or whether or not you get out of debt? Are you hoping in those things? What is your hope hanging on? What Peter wants you to know is this. Don't hope in us. Don't hope in the things of this world. Hope in God and God alone. Um, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that God has placed this invitation for you on the table. And Jesus is saying to you, come to me, all of you who are labored and heavy burdened, come to me and you'll find rest. What does he mean? He means you don't have to perform to earn everybody's favor anymore. You already have it. You've got the favor of the God of the universe. You no longer have to try to blot out your own sins. Jesus, I'll blot it out for you. Just come to me, bring your burden, lay it down right here at the foot of the cross and you'll have rest. Whatever it is that is burdening, creating anxiety for your soul, lay it down and hope in the promises of God. I'm gonna invite our worship team to come back up and just lead us in a time of responding. Um, by the way, this is the third time I've heard, I've heard this sermon today, and each time, I'm just telling you, God's wrenching my own heart in this. It's so easy with my children and my marriage and all these things going on to hope in things that are fleeting. And, and I just invite you to join me in, in, a, in this time of repentance. Could we do that? Could we see repentance as a beautiful, life-giving thing? Could we pursue repentance, this, this lifestyle of turning from sin and to Christ? As the band gets ready to lead us, just think about what your response needs to be. If you're here today and you're not a Christian and you want to become a Christian, I want you to understand something. Peter just laid it out for you. Here's what you need to do. Turn from your own, your own abilities and turn to Jesus. Come to that place of, of where you feel the sorrow for what you've accomplished and you turn to Christ and say, here's my mess. 
boom, I'm laying it down. And Jesus will do the rest. He'll do the rest. Or maybe you, like me, just need to be reminded that God is a God of rest and he desires rest for your soul. And so maybe you've picked up some burdens along the way you just need to lay down again. Um, Let's pray together and then we'll respond. Um, Father, thank you for the glorious hope we have in Jesus. Thank you for orchestrating this amazing plan of redemption and that you've included us in it. God, thank you that you have a plan and a purpose for every person in this room. Nobody is here today on accident. So God, now we ask that your Holy Spirit would come, that you would do more than just fill this building, you would fill our hearts, you would guide us towards truth, and God, you would grant us hearts eager to repent. God, thank you for redefining that word for us today that we're able to see repentance as a beautiful, life-giving, glorious calling. Could we become ever more eager to pursue repentance and turn to Jesus? For those of us who know you, speak to us again. For those who are here today who have not yet began a relationship with you, God, would you speak to that person? Would you call them to yourself? to respond. I just want to let you know that we'll have um, prayer partners in the back. And so in a minute when we stand to sing, you're welcome to just slip out of your chair and make your way back to the the back of the room and grab uh, one of the elders or a prayer partner. They'll have a lanyard on that says prayer partner. And we would be honored to talk with you about becoming a Christian and pray with you. Um, If you just want to stay seated in a minute when we stand to sing, I want you to feel free to do that as well. And for the rest who are ready to stand and sing together, I invite you to do that now. Let's respond now to what God has spoken.